This is most certainly true. In the greatest act of selfless mercy, God sent His own Son into our world to die for your sins. And we can't stop talking about it. We now present this sermon, recently delivered at Grace, to you. The Apostle Paul took his stand on the truth of God's word, that our standing before a holy God is not based on works of the law that we have done, but on the free gift of God that comes through his Son, Christ Jesus. A reading from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 3. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The word of the Lord. I wasn't the only one who was talking out of turn in the back of the classroom. And in fact, I wasn't even the one who started it. And I wasn't the loudest one either. It's unfair that I'm the one who is asked to stay in at recess time. Every teacher has heard it. I've been falsely arrested and unjustly imprisoned. It's unfair. I'm innocent of all the charges against me. Every prison warden has heard that excuse a time or two as well. I thought this road was a 65 mile per hour speed limit road. It feels like a 65 mile per hour speed limit road, doesn't it? Wouldn't you agree? After all, I was just trying to keep up with Traffic. Every police officer has heard it. Excuses. They're everywhere. 
We've heard them and we've made them. Excuses are like armpits. We've all got them and they all stink. Excuses like a lot of things has its origin in the Garden of Eden. Adam had his excuse. The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. Eve had her excuse too. The devil made me do it. Both tried to wiggle off the hook, but to no avail. They swallowed the devil's lies down fully and they were trapped, stuck, guilty, and about to stand as guilty sinners in the presence of a holy God. That is the place for you and where I stand as well. We've swallowed the devil's temptations, hook, line, and sinker. We've believed in his lies and, been, and then found out how foolish it was, and now we're stuck, guilty. And with the scariest thing of all, with the court summons in our hands, we've been called to appear in the courtroom of the Almighty. Before you waste your time trying to come up with some excuses or trying to develop a legal defense, maybe the words that the Apostle Paul uses to lead up to today's second reading might shed some light. The Apostle Paul shoots all of those excuses and defenses out of the water. Chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says, There is no one righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. The universal language that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans chapter 3, it's unmistakable and unavoidable. And that language continues on into the words that are before us for our consideration today. Verse 22, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, along with the rest of the world, aren't enough. We don't have enough to offer God what he demands, not even close. We can't earn enough or get enough or, or give enough, we fall short. Literally what Paul says there is we are found lacking, lacking of the glory of God and there's nothing we can do to change it. Nothing that we can do to fill that gap. Nothing we can do to fill what we are missing on our own to work ourselves up to the glory of God. No excuse that we can offer that will curry good favor or goodwill though we might like to try to make excuses nonetheless. Maybe I'm not at the top of the list, but I'm certainly not at the bottom. There are a lot of people who are worse than me. 
Maybe I'm not at the top of the list, but I'm trying really hard and I'm trying to get better and I'm putting a lot of effort and energy into it. I'm reading my Bible and I'm trying to do nice things. I'm trying to be a good person. But those are excuses. And they stink. They fall flat. And they don't accomplish what God demands of us. Even though we want to give our good enough excuse or or better than most, that's not the way that it works. The law condemns universally. Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. The whole world is accountable to God. He is their creator and we are his creation. The whole world is accountable to God under the law of God and subject to its demands. The whole world is under the law and responsible for keeping the law. And that means we, together with the whole world, crumble under the weight of God's expectations. We, together with the whole world, are guilty of sin. Every mouth, every mouth is silenced. Our excuses are no good. It does us no good to offer a resume or to give an accounting for our accomplishments. It doesn't work. Our better than most excuses, it's not what God wants. It's not what he demands. And it doesn't fix the problem of sin. It leaves us lacking of the glory of God, and it leaves our excuses, leave the judge unimpressed. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Martin Luther was plenty familiar with the law of God. He was raised in a religious climate that told him that the only way to earn forgiveness was to catalog all of your sins and to confess each of them individually. He was taught and had come to believe that the only way to have peace with God was through obedience, through keeping the law, through effort. That was the way to have peace with God, but Luther never found what he was looking for. He never found that peace with God. Young Martin Luther, he just was plagued with questions. Have I done enough? Are there some laws of which I'm unaware that I must be keeping? Are there sins that I've committed of which I'm unaware and haven't had an opportunity yet to confess? Martin Luther later would write about his perception of the scriptures at that time, his perception that the only way to get Jesus was if you also earned him with your obedience. He said that that was like a thunderbolt in his heart. If a monk like me who spends hours each day confessing his sin and then the rest of the day giving and living for Jesus, if a monk like me can't 
find peace, then who can? Is there anyone? Is there anyone who has peace with God? Is there anyone out there who has done enough to earn God's favor? Can Jesus give life to anyone at all? The more that Luther pondered the depth of his sin and the height of the demands that God had for him in his law, the more he came to the understanding that there was no way, no way that he could make the leap from the bottom of the pit to the top, no way that he could pull himself out of the pit and into a presence with the Almighty. He was left hopeless. Hopeless to gain the one thing that he truly desired, peace with God. He was hopeless until the Spirit of God shone the truth of the gospel into his dark heart. Until the Spirit of God opened his eyes to come to an understanding of a concept that had eluded him for all of the years up until that moment, the righteousness of God. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The righteousness of God is not another demanding of the law as Luther once believed it to be. The the righteousness of God is not another goal that is, is unattainable, but rather this righteousness of God is a gift of his grace. Luther came to an understanding of this concept, this righteousness of God in Romans chapter 1 and here again in Romans chapter 3. And that burden began to be lifted from his heavy heart. Here's what he said about that ordeal. He said, I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. That place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. Take that court summons you've been holding in your hand and set it on the table. Set it on the table between you and your righteous judge. The law has done its work. The law has emptied you of your excuses. The law has silenced you leaving you with only one thing left to do, to listen. To listen to the words of the judge because it's his courtroom. And in the judge's courtroom, what the judge says is the only thing that matters. Listen, open your ears to hear his decree. You have been justified freely. You have been declared not guilty, holy, and perfect in God's sight. This righteousness of God that Luther came to understand is the imputed righteousness of Christ. That means that it comes from outside of us. Christ Jesus earned it 
with his perfect life and innocent death. He earned it by satisfying every demand of the law of God, and then he gives it to us as a free gift of his love. He wraps us in his righteousness. He washes us clean of our spots and blemishes and the stains of sin, and he robes us in his perfect white robes. And now when God the Father looks at us, that's what he sees, the imputed righteousness of Christ. His perfection and holiness has become ours. You have been justified freely by his grace. But don't misunderstand me. You have indeed been justified freely, but that doesn't mean that salvation is free. You've been declared to be not guilty, but salvation isn't cheap. Christ Jesus paid dearly. He paid every last punishment for your sins and for mine. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Jesus paid the price to buy us back from our sinful ways. Jesus was the only one who could pay a price big enough, holy, innocent blood of our Savior God. And he was the only one with a heart big enough to have a desire to purchase back you and me into his family forever. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Christ Jesus came into our world to be our sacrifice for sin. It's his shed blood that is the redemption price that buys us back from sin, death, and the power of the devil. The word that Paul uses here, it's translated for us sacrifice of atonement. It actually is a rich, rich picture. The same word is used of the mercy seat, the atonement cover, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. That Ark of the Covenant which sat in the Holy of Holies, that was the place where God dwelt among his people. That was the place where only one time a year and only one specific man, the high priest, could come behind the curtain and only if he came with blood, he brought the blood of the slaughtered lamb and sprinkled it on the mercy seat to remind us, to remind God's people that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, to point people forward to better blood that would be shed once for all for the sins of the whole world. Christ Jesus not only made the payment for us for sin, but he is the payment. His is the better blood that would be shed. His is the sacrifice that was made once for all. Jesus is our mercy seat. He is the dwelling of God among us. He is the place where God dwells among his people. The moment that Jesus died, that temple curtain was torn from top to bottom signifying that we now, with sins forgiven, have access to a righteous and a holy God. And three days later, a stone was rolled away to reveal an empty stone slab, announcing to us and to the world that Christ is risen. We have access to God and a relationship to him through his sacrifice 
of atonement, and that's a relationship that will last forever because his tomb was empty. That empty tomb means that ours is a living Savior. That empty tomb means that we have a promise of everlasting life. Connected with Christ in baptism, we too will be raised from the dead. And that means that our relationship with God that we enjoy here on earth will only get better, and it will last forever in the mansions of heavenly glory. Martin Luther called this section of Paul's letter to the Romans the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. And what a difference these truths make. It's not about our obedience. It's not about our earning the favor of a demanding God. It's not about what we can do for God, but rather quite the opposite, what God has done for us. It's about his kindness and compassion. It's about his never-ending mercy and his limitless love. What the law could never do, what we were powerless to attain on our own, God has done for us. He's thrown open the doors of heaven and promised us a place there at his side for endless days. Yes, our sins are here, a constant reminder of our weaknesses and failures, but God's love is bigger than our sins. His voice is louder than our guilt. You have been justified freely by his grace. You've been declared not guilty, made perfect, washed clean. You're pleasing in the sight of God. On this Reformation Day and for all your days, celebrate. Celebrate this fact that your God has loved you so much, that he has done it all, that he has done everything that is necessary for you to have a relationship with him here and forever. Defend the truths of the gospel. Look for opportunities to share these truths of God's love with a world, a world that desperately needs to hear and a world that longs for a relationship with the divine. Rejoice. Rejoice in what your Savior God has done for you, that he has opened your heart to believe and your mouth to profess. We are justified freely by God's grace. Amen. Please stand. Thanks for listening. To learn more about God's grace or to support this ministry, please visit gracedowntown.org today. This grace is for you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with favor and give you peace.